1: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and today we'll be talking to Nico Fund about the Association of University Presses and University Press Week. You may not know that University Press Week starts on November 9th and runs through November 15th, but you'll learn about it, a lot about it in this interview uh, we'll be talking about university presses, and we'll be talking about the role that they play in our society. I should say the vital role they play in our society, and some of the challenges they face, and other related matters. I guess I don't know where we're going to go, Nico. Where are we going to go? Well, we'll find out. Well, yeah, well. we'll find out. So anyway, well, welcome to the show, Nico. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. I'm a so I'm a publishing
2: lifer, and I'm actually a university press lifer because I graduated uh, with a. Uh, B.A. in English uh, in 1987 from a small liberal arts school, uh, in Amherst College, and uh, started working in publishing almost immediately thereafter, and I uh, have really been hard at it ever since. I uh, have almost always been in the editorial realm, I uh, have taken on a number of managerial responsibilities over the last uh, 20 years, but I uh, yeah, I've, I have to say, I've, I've never, uh, you know, I'm 55 years old now, and uh, I think this is the period in one's life where one is supposed to start to feel slightly weary and uh, diminished and uh, wonder what it's all about and why we get out of bed and do this. And I have to say, uh, it might just be because it's November 2nd, but uh, I feel that the work that we do as university presses is more compelling and more urgent than it's ever been uh, in the time I've been uh, involved in it. And uh, I think a lot of that is attributable to the model of publishing that we bring to bear uh, and the, you know, the state of information in our society right now. So I think it's a really opportune uh, period for, uh, for this kind of publishing.
1: Yeah, we will talk about that in the course of the interview. Absolutely. Can you say a few words about the uh, University Press Week and what it is?
2: Yeah, it's essentially an attempt to highlight a kind of publishing, a realm of the publishing world that I think sometimes is not viewed uh, as being separate and distinct. So there are 154 uh, presses uh, in the university press world, ranging from very small presses that publish, you know, a handful of books a year to presses like uh, Cambridge, Oxford, Harvard, Yale, California, Johns Hopkins, that publish hundreds and hundreds of books a year and journals and online products and a variety of uh, innovative digital uh, types of content. And uh, the distinguishing feature of university presses is the uh, is the peer review process, is the fact that uh, unlike much of publishing, which is uh, based upon editorial instinct and the, the the notions that people bring to the table as editors uh, and as publicists and as marketers, we go through a, view, a review process, not just an internal one, but whereby we go out to, to external experts, most often in the academy, and ask them for their opinions, and uh, that is an extremely illuminating uh, pro- part of the process. Not just with regard to the intellectual merit uh, or the editorial contributions, but also with respect to the uh, to the commercial potential of a, of a work. So that that I think is the is the part of the university press world that um, that really stands out, and it applies to all of the kinds of publishing that we do, whether it is a an online encyclopedia of millions of words or a, a 140 page scholarly monograph based upon someone's revised PhD dissert- dissertation.
1: Yeah, thank you for mentioning that. I've been through both processes. I've published <laughs> a book with a trade press and I published several university press books. And I have to say the university press experience it's much more satisfying because oh. you know why they don't like your book. <laughs> yes yeah yeah.
2: why well, well, they like people, your book <laughs> i think people have this idea that, that uh, i get asked at, by academics a lot you know oh we must be horrible like you know I, i'm sure that we're really unpleasant to deal with when you send us these reviews and just so uh, listeners understand what this entails we basically uh, look out at the world of experts and we say who are people who are well positioned uh to review this before we make a decision about publishing it and you know, there there is a there, we want to make sure the pe- the people are reasonably objective, right? I think we follow somewhat more the New York Review of Books reviewing model than the New York Times model, right? We don't want somebody's college roommate reviewing a book, but we also understand that especially if you're working in a small area of a discipline or a subdiscipline, people know each other, right? So you, you're looking yeah. for somebody who can bring. Uh, a certain degree of neutrality, um, but the idea that the, that the process itself is somehow truly scientifically objective, especially in the humanities and social sciences, um, I think that's that's not quite the case. It's really more an attempt to smooth a number of subjectivities and bring them to bear on a, a collective decision, uh, and that is rooted in the response that we get from the re- readers, which can consist of you know, a three or four paragraphs saying, well, you know, of course you should publish this book. The field has been awaiting it for years. Uh, it won three awards as a dissertation, and it's a book that, you know, everybody wants to see, um, to a 25-page single-spaced report that provides, you know, detailed chapter-by-chapter analysis that, uh, as opposed to resenting that, uh, what we often find is authors are desperately grateful for that degree of pre-publication uh engagement because what it does is it prevents them from making mistakes that if they appeared in print would accrue to the you know to their disadvantage uh and uh, also it just speaks to i think a certain degree of uh uh, a charitable impulse, I think a sense of service, a sense of co- uh, commitment, a sense of community, and a certain degree of voyeurism because people like to see things before everybody else does, right? And so it's, it's interesting to see an unpublished manuscript and it gives you a sense of, of contributing to the advancement of knowledge in your discipline, which is after all, why people get into, in, into, into the academy.
1: I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And I've gotten both kinds of reports you mentioned, the one paragraph and the 20 page i really appreciated the 20 page because i thought of it just as you think of it they're preventing me from making an idiot out of myself (laughs) right right
2: right. i remember that one of the one review that i got years ago that uh the questions we ask there tends to be a sort of a a form letter that can be adjusted but it tends to ask is you know are the intellectual contributions here original Uh, what other works should the author have consulted is the methodology sound what other suggestions would you make and the re- and then at the end we say, would you recommend publication? And this one reader said, I, I think the argument is entirely unsound. Uh, uh, I think that, you know, the, the author is overlooking crucial sources that I think other scholars have also dismissed. But you ask me as to whether or not I should be, uh, recommend you publish it. And I absolutely recommend you publish it, because I'm an outlier in the field. And uh, nobody thinks about this subject the way I do. Um, but I am not uh, such a narcissist that I think I'm right, and everybody else is wrong. Um, I, although I do, I, but I think that within the uh, confines of your question, I think the book is absolutely publishable. And I thought that's a really um, astute take, right? Because uh, it is difficult, especially when you're uh, passionate about a subject to detach yourself from an analysis of that subject, right? And uh, the fact that this reader was basically uh, dismissive of the book, but felt that it was publishable and should be published, I thought was, uh, uh, was, was impressive. So, well, this, um, is,
1: yeah, this is how we find out if we're right or wrong, by engaging yeah. in these kind of John Stuart Mill esque dialogues about things, right. and I, I don't it's think right. people that they don't they don't uh, they don't value it as much as they as they should. I think because it's very important. And I also should go back to something else you said. The uh, I have been sent manuscripts to review, and I knew definitely who the author was. Yeah, that yeah. did not that did not change my approach to the book at all. Right. I mean, right. my job as a reviewer was to make the book better. Mm -hmm. I mean, I really, you know, and again, you're the publisher, you're going to decide, not me.
2: <laughs> yeah. And then there are also, I mean, there, you know, there are things that we take into account beyond intellectual merit, right? There is uh, things like uh, you know third party permissions issues and uh, you know whether they're competing books that are that we know are under contract or timing or any number of other things. So it's not the only uh, part of the process, but it is uh, it is core to it because uh, without it without a positive review process that we feel good about, we we generally don't think that we can uh, we think we do we can proceed. So, um, so yeah, so I think that's a, that's a really uh, key part of it. And, you know, the truth is um, I think everything these days in terms of media consumption, I I give a lot of talks to, uh, uh, to college students, to folks at different publishing uh, courses and so forth. And one of the things that I started doing is asking them at the beginning, you know, where do you get your information from? Like what makes you decide how you uh, are going to spend your time in terms of watching something, reading something, buying something? Uh, and it's really interesting, the, the answers are almost always quite similar, you know, there's a variety of social media, it's friends, it's uh, recommendations in certain publications, um, but fundamentally what it comes down to is, uh, you know, critics who are reliable narrators, right, that, that we're all trying to uh, figure out how to spend our precious uh uh, leisure time uh, or, or, or professional time. And uh, we don't want to spend it on something that doesn't merit uh, our engagement. And I think that uh, what publishers essentially are trying to do writ large is to provide that kind of a filter where you're saying, yeah, there's a slush pile of people who are um, you know, writing books that may be really interesting to them and their family or their relatives or their neighbors or what have you. But they're not actually uh, of sufficient appeal uh, and credibility to merit the engagement of uh, of a publishing company, Uh, and that engagement, you know, that's voting with your wallet. When you're a publisher, you're basically investing your resources and your time and your money, and that means you're trying to get something. It's you know, it's a form of angel investment. It's like uh, you know, the notion that every book is a is a a sort of venture capitalist funded uh, startup. Uh, and that really does hold true. I mean, you know, Marshall, that, that, that what's referred to sometimes as the 80-20 rule, right? Where, where a percentage of books that does succeed, uh, succeeds so well that it, that it uh, basically pays for all the books that don't succeed, right? And different industries have different hit-to-miss ratios. Now, I think commercial publishing, generally speaking, uh, the hit-to-miss ratio is much more uh, slanted towards misses, right? You have a few huge hits that cover up a lot of things that, that don't work. Uh, in, in academic publishing, university press publishing, that risk tends to be spread out more broadly. Um, I think it's probably more of a sort of 80-20 rule that 80% of the books you know, carry their own water um, and, that, and, the, and the water of the 20% that don't, that don't work. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's a really fascinating way in which to, to, to view ideas through the prism of both a mission-based dissemination and a degree of benevolent commerce, right? Because university presses, nobody goes into university press publishing to get rich and nobody goes into it thinking to themselves, I can't wait to make somebody who's already rich even more wealthy, well. <laughs> right? That's not, that's not the motive. The motive genuinely, however earnest it may sound is actually uh, you know, the advancement of knowledge and, and, and the betterment of humanity. And that, yeah. it does sound terribly earnest when I put it that way, but it's true. You know, there's nothing more satisfying, I think, when you see a book, whether it's, you know, in Oxford's case, um, you know, Richard Dawkins, The Selfish Gene, or whether uh, uh, it's, um, you know, a book like, uh, a book that Ohio State University Press published uh, years ago, uh, actually Ohio University Press, I think it was, um, called Justifiable Homicide, which was uh, an account of uh, about, I think about 40 women who had uh, killed their abusive spouses, but were found guilty of, 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 of murder by virtue of, fa- of the fact that there was no imminent uh, harm uh, being threatened at the moment, you know, the the abusive spouse would uh, go to bed and say, "I'm going to kill you in the morning," uh, after having abused uh, his his uh, spouse for for years. And then, in an act of self defense, the woman would would uh, kill the sleeping man. And uh, and then, so so this book that that uh, the small university press published actually had an instrumental role in changing the law. And I think that when you look at across the breadth of university press publishing, you will see things will percolate up in our world as they do in the academy before then gradually moving out into the culture, right? So whether it is skepticism about the carceral state, whether it is um, uh, arguments in, in uh, advocating uh, a gay marriage, uh, you know, across the board, there are different, whether it's economic arguments, policy arguments, they, they, they sort of, uh, they, they move around in the university, in the academy, in the university press world. And then, you know, perhaps no, nowhere more uh, conspicuous than over the last few years, uh, the engagement uh, in, on the subject, the all important subject of income inequality, uh, that was first really prompted by the publication of Thomas Piketty's book, Capital. Right? That was a book and, and sometimes people say, oh, well, people don't read that book. That's not the point, right? A book like that was this totemic object, like a wedge object that drove a discussion about what happens to society when from a standpoint of wealth, it becomes like a barbell, right? Where you have just you know, the terribly uh, uh, poor and the terribly wealthy. Um, and, uh, but there are any number of other examples almost every year where uh, University Press publishes a book like that, that then uh, prompts this, this conversation that takes place well
1: outside of the academy in a larger culture. Yeah, I like what you said about the 80-20 rule, and it's really kind of how we run the New Books Network as well. We have certain channels that are very popular. They yeah. get hundreds of thousands of downloads, but we're not giving up on biblical studies because yeah. Yeah. people are still learning Aramaic, and they're yeah. finding stuff out. And yeah. you don't know when you're going to need that stuff. I mean, sure, well, right I mean, now it's yeah. not very, you know. It's, it, it's, you know, this is one of these, these I think, aspects
2: of, uh, of American capitalism that um, that we as a country continue to s- struggle with, right? Where, if, for instance, like you take the LA Times, where the, the decision was made years ago uh, that each section of the paper would have to, um, you know, would have to make its own way. Every right? boat but, on its own bottom. Yeah. And I mean, that's obviously going to be a hell of a lot easier if you're the finance or technology section than if you're the, the you know, the arts right. section. Uh, right. And I think that but, you know, the flip side of that is, um, I mean, I'm, I'm sufficiently commerce oriented that I don't think that the, uh, the mere fact that something cannot sustain itself is reason alone to support it. Right. Like there, you do get a little bit like with when you when you have a book that um, is potentially going to be controversial. Right. So we published a book recently that was about um, a, uh, a prominent figure. I'm gonna sort of anonymize it for the sake of caution. And uh, uh, we, this is a person who's still alive. We generally don't publish biographical works about the still living. Um, and uh, this is somebody who was known to be extremely litigious. And it was not somebody I had heard of before. And the conversation from my end was, I, you know, I don't feel an obligation to publish a book simply because we know it's gonna be controversial. Right. What I want you to tell me as an editor is why should I be willing to incur what is going to be an expensive and cumbersome process? Uh, and the editor made a case that was ultimately very convincing. Um, but uh, and so we published the book and it sort of it has proceeded much along the lines that that we expected. It's been extremely well reviewed in The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, The Nation most recently. Um, and uh, and I think our, our our decision was was validated. But I think being neither you know a coward nor a martyr um, by default is is an important part of this. And that's not just obviously university press publishing. That's that's publishing in general.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think that's exactly right. Um, neither a coward nor a martyr. I think I'm going to start using that without attribution. Is that okay? <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's, a, it's a pretty fat middle ground. Yeah, it's good. yeah.
1: Uh, that, that's very good. But, you know, I think one of the things that people don't realize is the incredible depth of university press publishing. I have a figure in my head that says you publish about 15,000 serious monographs a year. I don't know how accurate that is. I'm sure it's within an order of magnitude or something. But they are about an astounding range of things. I mean, one of the things that we do on the New Books Network is we introduce people to subjects that they didn't know existed. (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah yeah
2: I, absolutely I mean I think that that is uh you know and and uh, I, I think one of the so we published a book a couple of years ago which was uh won the Pulitzer Prize in um in biography and it was biography of Alan Locke who was the uh one of the founders of the Harlem Renaissance he was the uh essentially the editor of the journal, The New Negro, which was uh, one of the most influential uh, organs of the the Harlem Renaissance. And uh, Locke was a a closeted man. Uh, He was very diminutive. He, I think, would have been accurately described as a dandy. Um, uh, He had a very close relationship with his mother with whom he lived. Um, uh, And he uh, was, as the author, over 25 years of investigation of his life um, found in conversation with other scholars, he had a form of gay male misogyny that actually manifested itself in the ways in which he chose to make editorial decisions, right? So he was uh, sort of actively hostile towards people like Nella Larsen, or Neale Hurston. Um, and uh, what was interesting to me about the aftermath of Jeffrey Stewart, the author winning the Pulitzer, were the conversations about his relationship to the subject, right? And so that book, um, was the subject of an enormously uh, like a feature article in uh, in the New Yorker, uh, and that was on the heels uh, of an article about another prominent African American, um, a woman named Polly Murray, who uh, had who was a, a a key legal strategic mind behind Brown versus Board of Education, uh, and we'd published a book called Jane Crow uh, by Rosalind Rosenberg, and it was. Um, uh, it was also uh, featured in the uh, in the New Yorker in a long essay about Polly Murray's life, and she just had one of uh, Yale just named I think one of their dorms, their renamed dorms after Murray. I mean, just she just led an extraordinary life, and she herself was what we now know to be trans, um, but did not have the language for that. Right, so she uh, uh, was in a in a constant state of of uh, torment because she. Uh, uh, had all the, uh, uh, the questions and the sort of internal turmoil uh, that, that comes with, uh, you know, having your, having your uh, gender expression, uh, having no outlet for it at all. And um, so that, uh, both of those articles, I think, probably did more to cause those uh, two Americans to register in public consciousness, even than our books. But the books were the vehicle for getting there right? Like the books were the, were the way in which people engaged. So, you know, Locke has since been a, um, a, a clue on Jeopardy, uh, has been a clue uh, in the New York Times crossword puzzle. And I assure you that if that book had not been published, if that book had not won the Pulitzer Prize, uh, Locke would not have been restored uh, in that way to, to cultural consciousness. So I think that, um, you know, we always tend to think of uh, any artifact or anything that you sell, in the US as you know, commerce is a, is a crucial prism through which to view it, right? Sometimes you can measure the impact of something by how many it sells, right? That doesn't seem controversial. But I think with, with, with historical works, with analytical works, with scientific works, social scientific works, uh, often the impact of it is felt in ways that don't actually be down to the commercial benefit of the book. Um, and again, the problem is you can hide behind that um, you know, uh, if you make bad publishing decisions or bad commercial publishing decisions. But, uh, but I think it doesn't make that point any less uh, forceful or true.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. Um, you, you know, again, I always say to people, you never know when you're gonna need that book. <laughs> it, it, doesn't, yeah. it has no relevance now, but you don't know. It's good to have it. Sure. And you're, you're just, what you mentioned kind of leads naturally into my next topic, and that is about basic research. And uh, I think most people don't even know what this is. And the fact of the matter is, is that university presses are deep into it. Yeah. They are the fundament upon which almost everything we know is built.
2: Yeah, and I think that, I, you know, one of the things that gets overlooked a lot there is the journals part of a publisher's program too, because uh, journals, especially in uh, science and medicine, you know, university presses publish a lot of journals. Uh, and that is the way in which content, uh, especially in the areas of science and medicine, gets gets validated, gets uh, scrutinized. Uh, we 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 talk about the impact factor, which is a way of gauging the number of times a work is uh, is cited and therefore its impact. I think we're now working our way through uh, other ways of evaluating impact, such as altmetrics, which looks at social media scores. Um, and I think the point you made about how you you never know, you know, when you when you. Uh, uh, when you'll need something, which is really the credo of the hoarder, I might add. <laughs>
1: yeah,
2: <it's> true. Um, <laughs> uh, but I think what is what has enabled that um, that truth to, uh, to to work to the benefit of university presses is, is print-on-demand publishing. All right, print-on-demand technology. Because yeah. it used to be that we had to keep our books in a warehouse in stock at infinitum, and now there are uh, you know multiple formats that we can uh, you know ways in which we can find. Um, Uh, readers can find books, whether it's Kindle, whether it's on a database, but the fact that at Oxford, the majority of books don't actually sit in a warehouse, they sit on a server and we publish them only when, uh, we print them rather only when when there is demand. And that has been genuinely revolutionary for uh, what is referred to as a long tail publisher, such as, uh, such as OUP, where you don't have to have, you know, money and, uh, and resource tied up in inventory that you don't uh, know if you're gonna sell, but rather you just basically make it at the point of demand. And that has been genuinely transformative. And I think has, you know, when we were talking about eBooks and digital dissemination and so forth, that uh, was something that I think really um, changed the industry
1: for the better.
0: That's shopify.com slash system.
1: This is really the principle upon which the New Books Network works. I mean, I have hosts contact me all the time and say, this book was published in 2012 or 2014. Uh, can we do it? Because it's called yeah. the New Books Network. And well, the first yeah. thing I always say is, there's a difference between a new book and new to the audience. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah, I yeah. guarantee you this book is new to the audience, so yeah. you can do it. But the fact of the matter is, that book's not really out of print. Yeah. And it helps the publishers yeah. by doing the interview, and it helps the author. Well, it's one thing we used to always hear
2: from our sales reps a lot and still do, which is, uh, you know, you publishers are always foisting new product on the market. But what you don't do enough of is when you have a, a demonstrably good thing in a book that has been well reviewed and well received. You know, I'm thinking, for instance, now we published a book called A Guide to the Good Life. Uh, which is uh, by, by a man named William Irvine. And it's essentially, uh, you know, rooted in Stoic philosophy. Uh, and it's a book that, you know, sells enormously well. Uh, it was uh, featured by Bill Moyers, which uh, the, was the first uh, catalyst for it taking off. But um, but also a book like The Death of Expertise, which we published a couple of years ago and is now deep into the six figures in terms of sales. And uh, the author has half a million Twitter followers and has become, you know, the, a leading defender of this notion that you have to rely on uh, you know, on data and on evidence and on empiricism rather than on, you know, passion and opinion. Um, and these books that are, that are sort of evergreen, as we say in the industry backlist, these books that for reasons of, um, cultural events or because they pertain in so many different ways can continually be, be sort of brought back to bear. uh, those are the ones I think that, um, that are, are, you know, uh, the ones that we are in many ways most proud of. But I think also, as you say, like, you know, everyone's, one of my, uh, uh, formative experiences when I was working um, uh, in my first stint at Oxford was uh, somebody came up, and uh, that, that was when I was still sort of uh, surprised at the uh, real esoteric nature of some of the high level scholarship that university presses published. And somebody came up uh, and, and plucked a book off of our, our booth, a stand at a, at a scholarly conference, and spoke to me in this extremely impassionate way. I think it was about, I um, think it was Hildegard Bingen or. Uh, But it it was something I didn't know much about at all, if anything. And uh, and this person was just so and enraptured by a uh, the subject and b having found a book on it. Uh, And it was completely beguiling. And uh, and you see that I think you know replicated all over the place um, uh, in this community.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. You really do never. There are so many niche communities, and again, this is right back to the New Books Network and your catalog and the catalog of every university presses. You don't really know where these little micro communities of interests are, but they probably exist. I mean, the web has taught us this. You just go to Reddit. There's a community about everything. And selling into that community, yeah. It's, it's exactly, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a really important point because the fact is one of the reasons that
2: I think scholarly publishers have made a pretty smooth transition to the world of the internet is because that kind of tribalism that you just described is replicated and in fact, in, arguably perfectly mirrored in yeah. the academy, right? That Disciplines are nothing but tribes. They're, they're, they're methodologically based tribes that see the world in a very particular way. They have uh, their own uh, disagre- disagreements with other tribes, um, and how those play out. You know, uh, there there are certain kind of standard ones where you know neuroscientists don't necessarily think all that highly of philosophers of mind, because the neuroscientists are in the lab doing the, doing you know MRIs, um, and uh, they they are you know they want to see uh, brain scans. They don't want to uh, yeah. read people's speculations, but that you know plays itself out. In sociology, and history, and in a range of disciplines, and it's really interesting from the vantage point of a press like Oxford, where we're active in a lot of disciplines, to see uh, you know to see that play out that way because you do you know it gives you an insight into uh, into human nature as well, which is uh, interesting in its own way.
1: Yeah. So let's transition the discussion a little bit, um, and this is a big question: What, what challenges do UPs face today?
2: so i think that uh where to begin you know it's been what's what's odd about the um this particular moment is that the uh university press community i think has weathered the uh the pandemic better than i think many of us feared in the in the depths of the early part of the crisis in in april and may so uh in my role as uh as president of the university presses this year, I'm on the the board and we do these constituency calls where we check in with other press directors. And generally speaking, things are actually quite, um, by the way, can you hear my radiator hissing?
1: Mm, No, I can't.
2: As long as as you can't hear it because uh, it doesn't bother me, but I just don't want your uh,
1: listeners to be. No, that's okay. That's called color in podcast. If you have a dog in the room, that would be good. It's called (laughs) an old Brooklyn row house. Um, uh,
2: But uh, yeah, so I think that, um, I shouldn't have lost my train of thought. We were talking about- we are uh, talking about the calls that you do with the constituents? Uh, right. And so, uh, you know, what I've been really pleasantly surprised by is that things are going quite well. I think that the presses that have struggled the most are the ones that are very reliant on region, what we call regional trade, which if you are a small press uh, in a state that doesn't have a lot of publishers, let's say you're affiliated with a state university, um, you probably have a lot of books that cater to your uh, audience in the state. And if that's a state that is is reliant on tourism and travel, let's say if it's Charleston, South Carolina say, or uh, Alaska maybe, um, and suddenly those people aren't there, the bookstores are closed, that's gonna be a challenge. But I think that um, I, I'm not, <laughs> You know, I, I wish I could say with confidence, oh, this is because everybody is uh, at home and they're tired of just watching Netflix and they wanna read more. I think there's probably some of that, but I think that uh, most of that is probably, you know, heads in, in towards fiction. Uh, and and the university presses do publish some fiction. Oxford publishes a lot of world classics, but um, but I, I don't think that that's the, the primary part of it. Um, I, I, I think that it's just a case that uh, the kind of work we publish, uh, has a uh, a finite market that uh, continues to be um, continues to need our, our our publications, and I think as we move into the new budget year, um, and of course this is going to be a challenging few years for higher education. Uh, then I think will that will be will um, be interesting to see how that goes. But for now, uh, it's been striking how not only university presses but the publishing industry at large, even those who don't have a large selection of titles, let's say in anti-racist pedagogy, which I think uh, you know, uh, presses like Beacon with White Fragility and uh, the work uh, that Ibram Kendi publishes. Those are books that, uh, you know, are selling hundreds of thousands of copies. Uh, um, But university presses have published, uh, you know, a a lot uh, around the same issues that animate the BLM movement. And I think that that's been uh, to our uh, our benefit as well.
1: Yeah, we've seen during the pandemic a a great increase in our audience at the New Books Network. And we do 80%, 85% of the books we do are university press books. So if that's any indication, uh, you are weathering the storm very well. I want to talk a little bit about um, the support that university presses get from academic institutions, because a few years back, there was a a kind of a kerfuffle about, uh, this happened at Stanford, I believe, and there was some question as to their commitment to continuing the subsidy that they gave or the support that they gave, I don't know if it's a subsidy, it might have been a loan or something, to the university press. Where does that stand now in general, or is there anything sensible you can say about it?
2: Yeah, I, you know, I think that every university press has a, uh, if not singular, then distinctive relationship to its parent institution. And I think that, uh, you know, for instance, uh, Oxford University Press and Cambridge University Press, by virtue of the fact that the British institutions, by virtue of the fact that the open access movement um, has been uh, more active and vocal and further is further along in uh, the EU and in the UK uh, than is the case in the US, um, I think that has certainly uh, influenced our, our disposition to, uh, to open access as a, as a means of increasing the uh, the range of our, our publications and the impact of our publications. But I think every institution, you know, when I worked at NYU, I reported into the Dean of the Libraries. Um, and uh, that meant that the way in which we then, it's different I think now uh, to some extent, but uh, then the, uh, the the focal points, the interests of the libraries and the press, uh, you know, dovetailed to some extent. So for instance, we published, a, a, the, the Attanament Labor Archives had a wonderful collection of, um, of testimonials of people who helped build a lot of New York City infrastructure. So we published a book called uh, Ordinary People, Extraordinary Lives, which focused on uh, uh, the lived experiences of uh, a lot of people who, who helped build the Brooklyn Bridge and the Empire State Building and so forth. So. Um, so I think every, every press is different when the university press get directors, uh, the university press directors get together as they on occasion do, there's always this slightly cagey attempt to figure out, uh, you know, <laughs> if somebody is their rent subsidized, are their benefits subsidized? Uh, so, so different presses have, have different, uh, uh, standing. I think, you know, it's safe to say that the vast majority of presses are subs- subsidized in some fashion or another, right? It's, uh, and um, because I think that the, the nature of the peer review process, the nature of a scholarly publishing, and the, the micro markets that we publish to in some cases, uh, it means that um, you know there's more uh, there's more cost and overhead. And one of the you know one of the things about university presses that I think is sometimes overlooked in terms of their broader contribution to the culture, and I think this is a really important point, is that review process I was just describing. You know, it it could be that uh, a book gets sent out to, let's say, seven different presses and four of them are university presses and three of them are commercial presses. And the four university presses all subject the manuscript or the project, the proposal to to peer review. So the author ends up with eight, nine different uh, uh, peer review uh, reports, um, but ultimately decides that they're going to publish the book with a commercial house. Right. Well that book has still benefited from that peer yeah. review process right and that is an investment of uh, probably a couple thousand dollars uh, uh and there is this this big invisible dividend i think that that university press peer review system uh provides to uh knowledge that is not actually published by by university presses and that's an amount that i suspect is in the millions of dollars a I year there it is yeah uh and that and that's not sour grapes you know alls, all's fair in, in love and publishing but uh, but I think it's important that if you don't have that peer review process, uh, and I, I can tell you from, from, uh, plentiful experience, there have been times where we have passed on a book that we didn't think passed the peer review process, only to have it picked up by another press and then see it skewered in print, uh, in the review process after publication for the very reasons that were picked up in the, uh, yeah. uh in the peer review process. So, um, so, uh, yeah, but I think that, it, you know, it's for every university press, there are 154, as I said, and I bet you there are 154 different uh, models of support. Yeah, I think and,
1: there are. That's why I asked whether there was anything generally you could actually say about it that had any sort of empirical force. And there, there just may not be. I don't know. Um, but you do mention a good thing. And I think for prospective authors and people that are interested in, in, in submitting books, I always tell people when they approach me because I've been on both sides of this. I've published a trade press. A new piece, I, I always tell them if you've written a really good book. You will find a place to publish it. There is just simply no doubt about it. You should be totally confident that some press is going to publish your book. It might not be your first choice or your second or your third, but some very good press is going to publish your book.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I think that, uh, you know, I think there's this general notion which is advanced, I think, uh, as much by people who have written books uh, and then uh, uh, found it difficult to get them published. uh, that you know, there is this enormous number of, uh, of spectacularly good books that are being uh, gatekept out of uh, availability by publishers. And I do think that the, the rise of EOD has also spawned the, uh, the author services publishing industry, which I think is a great thing. You know, I think it's great that people can, can uh, you know, print up their own books and, and, and in many cases, they're very nice, have them listed on Amazon. Like, How is that not good, right? I mean, I suppose you could make an environmental argument uh, against it. But I think on the whole, you know, that doesn't do a harm to uh, any harm to anyone. Uh, I think that it's, it's democratic. And, you know, you do on occasion, I mean, it's very much the exception not the rule, but have people who go that route and then end up um, being so successful that they uh, consider another publisher, uh, consider, a, you know, what uh, right. is a sort of traditional publishing house. But uh, no, I don't. I don't think that there's uh, that there's you know because again, publishers, you know, we get it wrong sometimes for sure. But um, we do also, you know, uh, our our interest is a is a is a vested one. It's a vested self interest where um, we are making assessments about the size of the readership and a market and the originality of the argument, um, and uh, and that's what we're paid to do. There's there's a stat that I think of all the time uh, that was in a Harper's Index one time where it uh, listed. It was based on a questionnaire where it asked people, you know, what percentage of the population do you think should publish books? And the answer was, uh, you know, the average person said, you know, three to 5% of the population. And then later in the same questionnaire, they asked the same group of people, uh, you know, uh, how about you? Have you ever thought about publishing a book? And like 85% of the people are like, hell yeah. You know, of course, I me. And I think in that difference between the 85 and the 5%, that's where, you know, we live as publishers trying to delineate between books that could be published, might be published and books that we think should be published because we feel passionately about them because they speak to us in some way and we think they'll speak to others. Uh, so I think that, that that's the, um, you know, that's the that's the difference. But, you know, the act of writing a book is an act of optimism and it's an act and sometimes of self-deluding optimism. Right. And that's not a bad thing. That's just a human thing.
1: Yeah. One of the first questions I always ask people when I do interviews for the New Books Network, and actually, it's my first question after, tell me a little bit about yourself, um, is why did you write this book? Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. the person just invested like 10 years of their life in this. It's yeah. kind of crazy if you think about yeah. it, that yeah. investment. And these are not books that make anybody any money most of the time. Exactly. So you must yeah. have, there must be something else back there that is probably interesting to the audience. Tell us yeah. why you did this thing. And you often get extraordinarily interesting answers. Yeah, I mean, people do
2: it because they, they're passionate about a subject, right? I mean, one of my favorite books that Oxford publishes is uh, called Adaptive Strategies for Small Handed Pianists. Um, <laughs> and it is precisely as the title suggests, right? Now, uh, one presumes that the author had some, you know, has some autobiographical relationship yes. to both the piano and to the uh, you know, the playing of the piano with hands that are too small to actually do what, uh, uh, what the music suggests. And uh, so, um, you know, that, that to me, I mean, that, that's the other point that I think is worth making is that, you know, in areas like uh, social policy, we have a, a big social wealth, uh, social work list, uh, public policy, political science, international relations. People publish books because they're interested in them, in the subject, they're interested, they're passionate about the subject, but also because they think they can actually, you know, right or wrong. Uh, And one of the things that I find myself saying to my junior colleagues a lot is, you know, Oxford is not a social justice change agent by intention, right? That is not our charter. That is not our mission. Our mission is to disseminate high quality information that is, you know, rooted again in data. But if the outcome of that, is um, as with the justifiable justifiable homicide example, if the outcome of that is uh, that society has made a better place, that policies are changed. And I do think that university presses when it comes to the reversal of the catastrophic uh, carceral state regime of the last 25 years, I think university presses have played a major role, right? Mm -hmm. Chicago, California, Oxford. uh, These are presses that have published on this subject from multiple directions. Uh, we published a book by Joan Petersilia, which was called When Prisoners Come Home. And it basically said, you know, if you don't support people when they leave prison, they'll end up back in prison. This yeah. shouldn't be a surprise to you. And you can look at this through the prism of, uh, you know, social justice and being a bleeding heart liberal, quote unquote, or you can look at it through the prism of uh, not wanting to spend money on continually reincarcerating people, right? Yeah. And those two. Um, goals can, can combine helpfully in trying to actually help people integrate in the society when they get out of uh, out of jail. And so, Joan was hired by the California Department of Corrections based on her book with us to try to implement some of those strategies. So, so that those are the moments where I feel um, you know, like I'm spending my life doing, doing something uh, genuinely uh, helpful and useful, but it's a crucial point that we are not, you know, that is not our primary orientation. Um, it is an outcome of our primary orientation.
1: Yeah, no, I agree with that entirely. That's sort of the editorial policy of the new books network. We, we disseminate knowledge. That's what we do full stop. I don't have a lot more to say about it. Uh, I, I wish I had beautiful paragraphs. I could just throw out, but I don't have them. Sorry. We're a public education project. (laughs) That's pretty much it. Um, But I want to go back. You mentioned the word list. And I also want to go back even before that to sending an inquiry letter to a press. And this is something I think first-time authors don't really realize. I've sent a bunch of them and the answer was just no, we're not even going to send your book out. And that's because there are lots of reasons for that. They haven't even seen your book yet. Yeah. I don't know if it's good or not. Well, there I mean,
2: yeah. you know, their presses the presses unavoidably have to specialize, right? Yeah. Like, uh, certain presses can only publish a certain number of books a year, um, and it may also be that that a book uh, falls well outside of the scope of, the pre- of an individual press's publishing program. So you know, you, the, despite the fact that we publish in a great deal at Oxford, we don't have a huge list in art history, right? We right. don't have a big list in astronomy. We don't have a large list in art history. And those are, you know, those are only the uh, uh, the A's. I think that, um, uh, or sorry, anthropology was my intended third list. Uh, but, um, but, you know, if you're a much smaller press, it may be that you literally don't publish in uh, history or you don't publish in sociology. Uh, there's a wonderfully helpful book that I consult all the time, actually, Um, I have it right here. Uh, it's the association of university presses directory. And at the, uh, at the, uh, in the first few pages of it, it lists all the staff of all the presses and their focal points and everything, but it has this marvelously helpful subject area grid on Uh, the, uh, on the y-axis, it lists the, uh, the the subject matter, and then on the x-axis, it lists the different presses. So you can literally line up your subject matter with the presses that are interested, uh, that have a list in in your area, and uh, and that's probably going to save yourself and um, uh, and uh, presses a lot of time. Acquisition yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, that's right. And sometimes it's it's you really can't predict because I remember in my own field, I was a Russian historian or am a Russian historian and I published books in early modern Russia. And if you were to ask me 15 years ago, who has the strongest list? I, you know, I, I might say it's Cambridge Oxford or something, but I would also include Northern Illinois university press. They had a great list yeah, yeah. in Russian history. Yeah, Somebody yeah. There has been a lot of time cultivating authors actually in yeah. that press was they, they have recently Allied somehow with Cornell. I don't know who had the other really good list, because my first book was with Cornell, but yeah. Northern Illinois, and if you want to do Russian history, this is where you should send your inquiry letter, not to everybody in the world. Yeah. Well, it's exactly right. And you
2: should you should send it to a small number of presses that are your first choice. I mean, I always tell people, you know, organize your list of desirable presses into group A and group B. Don't send out a proposal to 35 presses yeah. or even a dozen, because it just becomes a huge project to manage. Uh, start with the presses you're most interested in, write a tailored letter, try to find the editor who's been working, uh, in the area that you work in. You can look that up on Google books, Google yeah, that's easy. You can find, you know, the editors that are acknowledged in the books, look at your own library. Um, and, uh, and you can, you, you know, cause it's very, when I was an editor, somebody wrote me a letter and said, dear editor. Um, it was easier to ignore than if it was a letter addressed to me personally that said, you know, uh, I've just been looking at my shelf and I noticed that there are three books that you published that, uh, really uh, have made a difference to my scholarship. Like, I can't ignore that letter, right? It's too impolite. Right. And that may be sort of an ego coddling move, but what the hell, you know? And yeah. No time for um, uh, discretion when you're trying to get your book published.
1: Yeah, that's, that's. I think that's exactly right. So we've taken up a lot of your time and I really appreciate it. Maybe you could end the interview by saying something about something interesting on the horizon for university presses, something that's new and exciting, something you've learned, and not the New Books Network, something, <laughs> something other than the New Books Network that you're really excited about in the university press world.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think what, what I'm most excited about is uh, the fact that, uh, you know, this this part of the industry that uh, I think people have been uh, uh, foretelling the demise of as long as I've been in it continues to be, I mean, really, like if you, I mean, if you wanna, if you wanna uh, an entertaining exercise, Google the Crisis in Scholarly Publishing. and uh, You know, it's just this, the, the list of results dates back decades. Um, but I think this, you know, this ongoing relevance of, of the presses I think is, is crucial, but you know, there's so many different experiments going on to answer your question. You know, you have Princeton that has started up an audiobooks group, right? They're doing their own audiobooks. You have uh, an open access pilot program in, uh, in history taking place at the University of North Carolina. Uh, you have the University of West Virginia, uh, West Virginia University Press, uh, and, and Ohio University Press, I think both, have finalists for the National Book Award, right? Uh, it's, it's, there's so much going on, and there's so many different experiments taking place, you know, at, a, at, at Oxford, we... Um, uh, we are just putting all of our uh, series of books in what, in, called What Everyone Needs to Know Online. This is in the aftermath of having done so for all of our close to 700 very short introductions and our close to 900 Oxford handbooks. Uh, I think the the availability of content and of high quality content uh, to uh, people is, is greater now than ever before. And Uh, And I think that what people sometimes overlook is the fact that it's not that the content is unavailable, it's that the portal for accessing that content is sometimes the problem, right? So this notion that uh, somebody at a university in in, uh, another country can't access our content because the publishers have restricted it as often as not, it's because the uh, the hardware or the Wi-Fi or what have you at that university uh, is not uh, sufficiently robust. So I think that's all changing. And I do feel as if um, you know, we're moving into this period where uh, people's the, the sort of traditional, boundaries and categories are starting to blur and shift a little bit. Uh, I think some of the things that we've seen in what's called inclusive access, where higher education publishers are working directly with institutions to try to uh, provide pedagogical materials, um, that's very promising. So I, you know, I, it's hard to know where to begin in answering that question just because there's so much going on. And normally when you ask a publisher that question, they will immediately start telling you about the books they're most excited on, about on their front list, but I'm going to spare you that.
1: Yeah, no, no need to do that. You can go to to the Oxford University Press website and you can see what they really like there. I I, I wanted to say that I'm aware of some of these experiments at university presses, and Mm -hmm. I I really applaud them because they they, they, they are wonderful in all kinds of ways. And uh, it's just interesting for me to see the various experiments that are going on to try to actually improve access to all of these books, because it's, I don't know, I'm old enough to remember when I wrote my first book, I lived in a library. Uh, mm. I wrote my last book. I didn't go to a library.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, <last> library. <laughs> this, this particular moment, I had a meeting with all of our editors this morning, and I was asking people, you know, are you finding differences in the uh, in, uh, um, reviewer availability, in submissions? And, and what people said is uh, what we're finding is, is that people are struggling a bit to complete books because they can't get in the archives. Right, yeah. and I thought that was interesting because you know I don't actually think of uh, you know I uh, obviously facilely think that so much is digitized, but so much is not digitized, yeah. right? So much, and 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 Robert Darton at, the, uh, at Harvard and formerly at Princeton uh, has his whole theory about the you know the, the the sort of pyramid of scholarship where you have the you know the, the the single stone on the top of the pyramid is a published book, and underneath that you have the various drafts and the peer review process and all the primary and archival materials, um, and uh, and I do think that, you know, we will we will move towards an era where a lot of that uh, that content is accessible uh, digitally, uh, even more broadly than now. But, you know, that is going to take uh, a lot of time and it's going to take a lot of resource. But uh, I think it's inexorable. And uh, and I think that that process is, is underway.
1: Well, thank you very much. Can I uh, make a request? Please. Yes. Uh, more audio books. I love audiobooks. I just am addicted to audiobooks, and but yeah. not, it's not deep enough, you know. I mean, I, 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 I am the kind of person that will listen to a monograph as an audiobook, yeah, if I could yeah. get it. But you know, Audible or whatever it is out there's just not deep enough. Yeah. Well, there's a company called Recorded Books that's doing a lot of work with
2: university presses right now, yeah. and yeah. and I think we're still in that respect, still, still in the somewhat experimental stage of of audiobooks. So I think we're still learning. You know, we. We went through the period, the period with ebooks where we learned an enormous amount over the course of about six or seven years. Where, you know, first there was this notion of print's dead, you know, everything's going to be ebooks. And then you saw um, uh, a, a, a trough in ebook sales. I mean, ebook sales actually one year were down for us, which was a surprise. Uh, and then you saw a, um, a, a, a return to, uh, uh, you know, a sort of stabilization of print. And now this year, you've seen a a, a real explosion in ebook sales. So I think audio, I mean, that gets us into this whole question about like how people learn. Like, I think people's brains are different. And that act of having a book interpreted for you, because there's this quote that I always come back to by John Updike about reading, being, being this uh, encounter in silence of two minds. And of course, that encounter is taking place in silence if it's on a screen or a page, but it's not taking place in silence if somebody is actually reading something to you, which, especially in the case of fiction, is is an act of interpretation. Um, so I think we're still, you know, uh,
1: figuring it all that out. But uh, uh, plea plea heard. <laughs> okay, good enough. All right. Well, let me tell everybody that we've been talking to Nico Fund uh, this uh, episode about University Press Week, which starts on November. 9th and runs to the 15th. And Nico is the president of the Association of University Presses. So Nico, thank you very much for your time. All
2: right. Thank you very much, Marshall. All right.
1: Okay. Bye-bye. Okay.